As one of America's largest financial services companies, Nationwide makes simplicity a priority so financial professionals can help their clients achieve their retirement goals. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. It offers flexible spending capacity that adapts to your business. You can also earn up to $395 in annual statement credits on eligible purchases at select business merchants. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. This is the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrow and Lisa Abramowitz. Join us each day for insight from the best in economics, geopolitics, finance, and investment. Subscribe to Bloomberg Surveillance On Demand on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere you get your podcasts. And always on Bloomberg.com, the Bloomberg Terminal, and the Bloomberg Business App. A huge debate, and of course, our theme on this Monday morning is the many narratives that are out there. Stephen Major is Global Head of Fixed Income Research at HSBC, joins us here and on through uh, this half hour. Stephen, you are, are iconic for a lower yield call. There is a camp aggressively looking for lower yields, led by the IMF in a stunning five-year GDP projection globally. Reaffirm now the low yield call. Yeah, the, the IMF also have identified the low R star numbers. I know you're not a big fan of that from what I've... Well, I had to be yes On yeah, Friday, yeah. I was sitting next to Olivier Blanchard oh, on really? Friday at a panel. So I had to lo- I love R star on Friday. The, the reason you have to be a fan of it, or at least consider it, is that you need an anchor in your process. Now, the word anchor is sometimes taken negatively, i.e. that you're stuck, you can't change your mind. But I like it as a, as a sort of ballast to the thinking process in that... We're anchored around this low R star because we seriously believe it. We believe that the debt levels in the system and the demographics and the total factor productivity, these are Mm -hmm. key drivers of this destination point. Now, most people seem to spend nearly all their time talking about the policy rate today. Right. But you need both. And, and, and I think it's, it's completely reasonable to have that debate. A strategist away from what you do is Ian Lingen, who's uh, widely acclaimed in America. Yeah. And he aggressively said today, the 10-year, 3.56%. If it gets to 3.65%, that's a buying opportunity, yield down, price up. Yeah. Do you have that nuance now? Or yeah. are you just saying buy the 10-year? Yeah, well, no, I, 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 I think uh, people look at me, they read the stuff, and they think I'm just one way, just a bomb bull. And I guess you guys have done that to me as well right, over the years. And, and, and it's fair enough, I guess, consistently, we have forecast lower yields. There's a tactical overlay as well. We want to buy at more cheap, at cheaper levels, right? So I think somewhere between here and three and three quarters is a good entry level. If 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 someone says three sixty five, then really you want to go in at three sixty four. <laughs> but the, but the, but the, you know I, I I think it's very difficult to imagine us getting back to four percent. 
on the tenure? I'm actually less interested in the tactical yeah. movements than yeah. I am the sort of larger destination yeah. call because that is one that I have never seen such a disagreement on as I have yeah. seen now, where so many people say this is a new era, that yeah. the fragmentation that we're seeing with China and with the US and with Europe is going to lead to higher costs, yeah. that we're going to see uh, some sort of more <clears throat> persistent inflation. Why do you push back against that? Well, look, I, I respect these views and we have to try and consider all available information. It, it, it's intuitively quite logical what you just said. So defence spending, the transition to net zero. There are questions about the behaviour of ageing populations as well. So, so, so they could change. So there's all sorts of pushbacks to the lower for longer view. But the thing is, I didn't see much science in any, in any of this. And I've got an observation that goes back four decades that says that there is a trend in place and the higher debt has been associated with lower yields. And I dare say it's even causal. Now, until until we can overcome that, until you have a tipping point and it goes the other way, I, I think that that's, that's the, the, the central uh, tenant of the hypothesis, if you like. And in science, you need to be able to reject that. And what I hear at the moment are anecdotes. There's, there's going to be this, so this this will happen. Well, re really, where's, where's the? I mean, there's there's a lack lack of rigor around the whole the whole thing. Well, although you could say this is a very quickly moving story, and that before the past four decades yeah. was a different inflationary yeah. regime, and some people would argue that the fact that we've seen such resilience, as evidenced today by that early New York factory data shows that perhaps there is more steam behind this recovery, more steam yeah. behind this uh, inflation and growth than yeah. people previously have gave credit for. Yeah, f fair enough. Look, the inf inflation is high and sticky and it's not going to get back to target anytime soon. But we've got so many other things to consider. And to me, the common denominator behind a lot of the, the themes that keep running through the market is the debt. Now, you, you spent a lot of time on this program talking about the bank stress. That, that's one sector of, the, of this economy. Not, not just the global economy, of this economy. And, and, and the common denominator that runs through all of these inflection points seems to be debt. It happened to crypto, it happened to SPACs, it happened to the UK pension industry. And, and it's just going to keep happening. <laughs> well, and it's also going to pressure, to your point, at fiscal spending. So there's not going to be the same kind of ability to spend on some of these things that people are talking exactly. about because of that overhead, exactly. that weight of the debt. Exactly. So where we are right now is this idea where people don't necessarily say that they agree with you and they fight back against the IMF, yeah. but they're trading as though they do. Yeah. They're trading as though they're going to yeah. see rates get cut significantly by the end of this year. Do you agree with that? Do, do you know this right or wrong or agreeing or not doesn't really matter. And in fact, the, the, most, the most frustrating thing for me is meeting people who totally agree with me because they want the confirmation. And then you meet the others who completely disagree. And it doesn't seem to be much in the middle. And so it, it's not about right or wrong, right? It's, it's the process and it's, it's the thinking right. behind it that, that, that matters. The wall of money that's out there. Sir John Templeton told me once in my ute that there would be a shortage of bonds. That's exactly yeah. what he yeah. said. Yeah. There's a wall of money out there and a shortage of bonds to the Steve Major belief of a broader view. And Blanchard, I think, totally agrees with you on the trend is in place of a lower r star is price up, yield down. Yeah. How much price up, yield down? The, the how much of this off the 10-year benchmark, can you model a sub 3% 10-year yeah. yield from here out X number quite, of quarters? Quite easily. I mean, our forecast is two and a half for what it's worth. The, 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 the lack of safe asset to me is a, is a paradox. 
Because after all these years of QE, trillions right. and trillions, surely there's plenty of safe asset out there. Well, actually, there's, there's too much of the wrong kind of safe asset. You see, the excess reserves created by central banks to buy the bonds in the QE, that's not something that, that, that we can, that you and I can, can access. Mm-hmm. Lisa, you can't get excess reserves, right? You, you, you have no, that, that's for banks only. Only my right? kids. What you want are T-bills. Yeah. You, you want T-bills. Yeah. And there's a lack of those. There is not enough T-bills yeah. around, right? So, so globally, there is a lack of liquid, safe asset. Mm-hmm. That is still the case. So, so why are people surprised that the two-year yield can sit 100 basis points through the money rate? Why would you be surprised about Because the price is <laughs> up. <laughs> because it's, it's factoring in the average policy rate for the next two years. It, mm-hmm. It's saying it could be five for eight months, it could be four for eight months, but it could be three for the next, for the next eight. The, right. av- the average of those three numbers, I believe, is four. So it, it's, it's quite possible, right? This has been fine. Um, I, I've got like 45 seconds or so. I oh. purposely watched West Ham highlights with Arsenal yesterday. Wow, that was exciting. How does West Ham rebuild from the threat of rele- relegation? Well, they, they look like, say it quietly, they look like it, they're, they're almost safe at the moment. Um, it's a shame you didn't watch the whole game because the highlights don't do it justice. I'm American. I'm only fair to watch the whole game. After 10 minutes, it could have gone to 7 or 8 0. Yeah. Um, I was going to say nil, but this is an American audience, so mm. I have to. Uh, yeah, zero, zero, zero audience. There's nil chance we'll understand nil. <laughs> but but it's really exciting. I mean, Farrell's got me into all this. And it's your fault as well. Yeah, it's it's partly my fault. But yeah. try and watch the whole match sometime. Uh, thank you. I'll do that. I think I got my marching order there. Steve, this is phenomenal. Thank you so much. For an entire match. <laughs> Stephen Major, thank you so much for like, that. Lisa, your thoughts on that? To me, this is such a rich conversation, and it's not one or two ways it could go. It's like four or five ways it could go. The science underpinning our assumptions. To me, that's my takeaway. People make a lot of proclamations based on logic, but how do we look to some sort of science at a time of such great uncertainty? And this is the difficulty right now. People are coming up with different parameters and making different arguments. And looking at different data points. If you look at history and you think of the debt overhang, it does complicate issues. Although you could push back and say, well, if everybody piles into bonds, that's going to lower the interest rate and that'll Mm -hmm. increase the ability to spend fiscally. And then we get right back to it. So Um, it's kind of a lot to wrap your head around. Are you going to watch a whole soccer game with me? I used to play soccer. I would love to watch a whole soccer game with you. Mm -hmm. Okay, we'll have to. (laughs) Schedule one. Yeah, There's, in 2027. You know, well, well, we'll do that as well. Red and green on the screen, and this is important. Coming up here, John Farrell's going to have some really good coverage with Edward Ludlow of this rocket ship that's going up. It's another day. It's an April day, and this is a piece of hardware that America has never seen. I can't emphasize enough how original this rocket launch yeah. will be, and we'll see that in the next half hour. Rocket launch for us is a VIX of 17.72. Maybe it was a bear market in ending in October. Stay with us through the morning. This is Bloomberg. Nobody ever says, make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs to ways to cover rising healthcare costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. 
Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Let's frame the debate in the equity market right now with a bull and a bear. Here's the bearish view. Mike Wilson, Morgan Stanley, kicking off the week. With the fastest Fed policy shift in 40 years, we think more negative surprises lie ahead for investors. He goes on to say, one that we think is in plain sight is earnings forecasts that remain too optimistic. That has been the message from Morgan Stanley for months now. Binky Charter takes the other side. The chief global strategist and head of asset allocation at Deutsche Bank joins us right now. Binky, so let's start with this one. And good morning to you, sir. Thanks for being with us. Still long, still optimistic. What underpins that view for you? So in the very near term, it's earnings. And I think, uh, you know, the things to keep in mind are, number one, the equity market almost always rallies during earnings season. It's not a huge rally. It's about 2 2.5%. But, uh, you know, that would put us, it would change the handle on the S&P to uh, the mid-4200s, closer to 4300. I think on earnings, the big picture issue is very simple, which is that if you look at the top-down macro drivers, what we had is upgrades to growth in the U.S., in Europe, in China, in Japan. We had the dollar come down. All of that argues basically for, you know, upside in or, or, or a rebound or a turn basically in earnings up. And if you look at the same time as what we are measuring earnings against, which is the bottom-up consensus, it's been falling since June of last year. It's down about 16, 17% now. And so when you take the top-down drivers and you, you know, plug them into our earnings models or frameworks, it's telling you we should get a pretty significant rebound in earnings. We should get a pretty average beat of about 5%. So there's this narrative out there that the bottom-up consensus is forecasting, you know, the worst earnings mm -hmm. season ever and down 7%. I mean, I think they should be a little bit careful with that hypothetical because earnings beat almost always by 5%. So you're already down to sort of about 1.5%. And so if you get a little bit bigger beat, you saw the results on Friday, you know, you're back at zero. Okay, well, you got 20 stocks doing well. And, and the S&P has basically made it halfway back out of a grim bear market. Uh, institutional portfolios maybe have made halfway back is a basic statement. You talk, and this is great, Big Chata, and that you take a longer timeline, a more relaxed view, and within that you talk about a passing of the baton from earnings to the next thing mm -hmm. to keep your optimism going. What's after our earnings analysis? 
Well, you know, it will then depend basically on, uh, you know, the big cloud and whether it's going to erupt into a severe rainfall of uh, the U.S. recession. And there, what I would say is that basically, you know, instead of just looking at the aggregate all the time, we should do what we used to do when the pandemic began, which is differentiate goods and services. And what you will see here is a very, very clear picture. And what I would argue is that, you know, now really comes the test. If you think about a trend line, we've got services that fell far below and have been rebounding and sort of, you know, asymptoting or the growth rate is slowing basically towards trend. And the important thing to keep in mind about services is they don't generally slow very much. You don't get really recessions in services. And all of the action has really been for the last two or three years on the good side, where we got massively elevated relative to trend, depending on what metric we are talking about, anywhere between 15 and 25% above trend levels. And, and it is something that we wrote about in the summer of 2021 called the COVID speed cycle. And since then, what has happened, uh, I would argue, is an incredibly resilient outcome, which is we've been going sideways in real terms for two years. And the key question is, as we come back down to trend levels, which we are very near now, uh, are we going to start growing or are we going to suddenly crash? But so. As we talk about earnings season and the expectations are all over the place, you have a more bullish expectation. Mike Wilson, a more bearish one. Mm-hmm. The overlay of a banking crisis that wasn't, what are stocks currently pricing in? Taking out some of the regional bank stocks, what are they pricing in with respect to contraction of credit? Uh, I don't think that the equity market uh, is pricing in that much in terms of a credit downturn. But you know, if you look sort of at you know, what is the equity market pricing? It's pricing an ISM of 46, which is what we got. Uh, so it, it, it's it's kind of right where it should be in terms of the very short-term, near-term drivers. So nothing really more than that. Uh, and in terms of the banking stress, you know, to the extent that it's already captured basically in the PMIs and the ISMs, then, you know, the market's priced it in. So something bigger, no. But, uh, Do you think it makes sense that we have basically an S&P 500 you anticipate will get to 4,300 in a rates market that is pricing in some serious rate cuts. Um, Do you think that can persist? So, you know, on the rate cuts issue, what I would say, you know, if we are talking about the 10-year yield, you know, the difference of view between the Fed when you open its dot plot, the first thing that you see is the rates are coming down massively. So the question is really about six months over a 10-year period, six months, eight months, maybe nine months, but it's not a huge move. I think the bigger issue for rates really is, you know, all of the forward guidance that convinced the market to go massively short uh, kind of blew up. Uh, and and so is the risk appetite to be just as short going to come back? So well, I just quickly, ask the question from I, an I'm equity skeptical. perspective, Binky. I'm just wondering, <clears throat> does the S&P 500 at 4,300 and CPI at 5%, does that encourage the Federal Reserve to cut interest rates? I mean, I, I no, struggle with the logic. No, it certainly doesn't. No, I mean, it's not our house view, but our house view is that we will cut interest rates next year. Yeah. So it's, uh, again, I don't want to get overhung up on uh, what is a very fluid calendar and precise calendar times, and then they're all out there in the future. So uh, I'd be a bit careful on that. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Thank you, Charter of Deutsche Bank. 
Joining us now, Jordan Rochester, G10FX strategist at Nomura for a morning brief for Global Wall Street. Uh, Jordan, what I find interesting is if I triangulate and go to Euro-Yen, I've got Euro-Yen buttressed up against resistance at a 147. It's unimaginable strong Euro-weak Yen. On the U.S. dollar pair, is it about strong Euro? Or is in the zeitgeist this weekend, is it about weak dollar? been a bit of both, Tom. I mean, I think in the past few weeks, it's been the dollar side that has really moved the needle for euro dollar. Uh, with the banking situation, SUBs collapsed. It's allowed markets to price in the idea of Fed cuts. And a lot of people would argue too many Fed cuts are priced in. Um, the irony is there are the, these cuts priced in, and, and I don't see anyone arguing um, uh, for them to be priced in that way. So there is a, a bit of a dislocation between narratives and actual market pricing. But Tom, I think the good news for euro isn't over. I think the growth pickup that we've seen in the first quarter this year should carry on into the second quarter. Uh, that should keep the ECB in a more hawkish footing. The market is pricing very much a, uh, a too low terminal rate for our, in our view for the ECB. So we look for 425, 4.25% by July. The market's somewhere around 3.6. Now for the Fed, they could do a rate hike of 25 base points in May. Our economics team thinks they won't. They think they are done with this rate hike cycle after the banking situation. But the market's pricing 21 base points or so for that meeting. So if the Fed do go ahead and do a 25, I don't see much upside for the, for the dollar from that from that rate hike, where with the ECB, the market's not pricing the 50 basis points that we expect to see from them the next meeting. So from a monetary policy point of view and from a growth point of view, there's more upside, 114 in euro in the next three months. Jordan, you sound like Christine Lagarde, optimistic over the weekend speaking to CBS. Now, Jordan, I just wonder if there's anything to be optimistic about. Is this for 25 on rates at the ECB because growth can handle it or growth is really outperforming? Well, last year was pretty doom and gloom. One of the best trades we had was just being short euro dollar, short cable from pretty much January, February time onwards, especially when Ukraine was invaded by Russia. This year, it has been super different. It's been all of those negatives of last year turned around from uh, headwinds into tailwinds. So last year was about very high energy prices weighing on the consumer, weighing on the government spending situation as well as corporates. Now, energy prices have pretty much collapsed in terms of natural gas. They've gone below where they were before uh, Ukraine was invaded too. This is a huge um, sort of disposable income boost for consumers and for firms as well, uh, reducing their, their costs. So that from, from that side of things, the terms of trade for euro would put euro dollar between 115 and 120. Massive good news. But for the euro area and the monetary policy side, we've got all the inflation from last year feeding through to second round effects very tight labor market. We're seeing wage hikes coming through. We're seeing strike action in France uh, as well. These sort of uh, stories in the labor market will keep the ECB in a hawkish setting until it becomes very clear that inflation is going towards 2%. Where in the US, the Fed's more of a dovish setting now because the banking crisis has seen uh, credit conditions tighten for firms. And we're already seeing the forward-looking indicators suggest that disinflation pressures are on the way. And last week's CPI not coming in too hot allowed the market to carry on looking at those forward-looking signals of inflation. Because, John, the key difference for me is that the Fed is, is perhaps going to turn from looking just at realized inflation to maybe considering forecasts of inflation when it comes to their policy settings. The ECB, they're not yet, yet at that stage. They're a few months behind. That's why we think they'll keep raising rates through to July. So this is a conversation about the cycle. Now, Jordan, you know how this works. Euro dollar goes from parity to 110. You get a 10% move and you see those doom and gloom articles 
rules about the end of the US dollar circulating everywhere. Can we talk about the structural shifts that you're expecting from the greenback, Jordan, and whether you subscribe to this theory that you are going to see this structural shift away from the US dollar? The digitalization of, of trade is helping, uh, for example, China's uh, role in SWIFT payments increase. It, the actual choice of currency in the past was tied to ease of use, and that was one of the factors behind it. And now there's an ease of use of just using any currency. So there is a structural tailwind for alternatives to the dollar. But there's also, the, when, when there's a crisis, you need dollars. That's still going to be the case for a quite long time. Uh, trusting those current other currencies to hold their value uh, will be difficult in times of stress, especially if it was a Eurozone-related crisis or if it was elsewhere in EM that we had a, an alternative crisis. Uh, high levels of inflation in, in that other choice of currency would erode the value of that. So it's not a perfect uh, w uh, world for alternatives for the dollar when it comes to global trade, when it comes to uh, just getting uh, things, uh, cross-border payments done. So John, in essence, there are definitely shifting uh, tides, helping alternatives to become more of an option. But I do think that the dollar is going to remain the majority uh, reserve currency for probably the rest of our lifetimes. Jordan, I want to go back to something that you said, which is the banking crisis in the U.S. will keep lending conditions tighter, uh, which will really cap how far the Fed can raise rates and talking about how that could potentially pressure the dollar, even if it's not a long-term kind of structural shift, as you were just talking about uh, with John. Let's say there is no banking crisis. The M&T results that we got this morning seem to suggest that it's not really a problem, that all of a sudden, do you start to price in more Fed rate cut or hikes and you end up with perhaps a stronger dollar than you'd otherwise assume? The biggest risk to the trade we have, Lisa, that's it. That is the biggest risk. If the banking data massively improves, um, all of the doom and gloom goes away. And let's say it's followed by an inflation print or two that comes in hot. Uh, let's say shelter doesn't cool down. Let's say goods prices rebound. Then absolutely the dollar strengthens in that scenario. The H8 data, this gets released every week. Uh, the update from Friday showed that actually we didn't have uh, consumer credit tighten as much as the previous two weeks. So we'll have to keep an eye on that data. If it massively rebounds, which would be completely shocking and weird. But if it was to do that, then you could definitely see the Fed carry on hiking, perhaps not at the 50 basis points clips that we saw last year. Maybe it's just the 25s until something else breaks, because it seems that when you get to these levels of rates, something does break. We've seen it already in the banking sector. The question will be, what else? Is it commercial real estate and uh, or other factors to consider? So yes, that is the biggest risk to trade. Oil prices is the other one. So if oil rebounds, gets to $90, $100 a barrel, inflation rebounds, and therefore the Fed continues to remain hawkish. So yes, rebounding in banking data and energy prices, two main risks to this long euro dollar view. Which also raises this issue of positioning, right, and how fragile positioning is at a time of great uncertainty. We've seen incredible whipsaws in benchmark rates, which should be a ballast for markets of stability. How tenuous is positioning that could create some really big moves in currencies, uh, in currency pairs, given some of these big risks? So positioning data is, is clear that essentially folks are on board with the short dollar trade. The euro seems to be where the consensus has built up, given all of the bad news from, yesterday, from last year has turned into good news this year in terms of trade up. So the question is, if credit conditions tighten, can the euro really rally? And we saw that with SVB. When we had the financial conditions tighten, the euro dollar did come off that day and, and then it spread through to Credit Suisse. Uh, I actually thought it was remarkable how it didn't go much lower during that period, that period of crisis. So the positioning is uh, one thing in FX. Yes, it's long euro. 
But I do think about last year. Most of last year, real money managers divested away from European stocks because of the recession, because of Ukraine and Russia, because of higher energy prices. Now we're seeing continued inflows into the euro area, a rebalancing away from US equities towards European. And that's a structural uh, trade as well. We've had underweights in European equities amongst investors for the pretty much 10 years. All of the growth was in technology stocks in the US. That's now changed. So I think that it's on the FX future side, it suggests long euro is in vogue, but I'm still seeing five months of continued equity inflows into euro area. So I don't think investors are overly net long euro uh, to make a big risk for this trade right now, because I'm also looking at from a terms of trade perspective and from the China reopening perspective too. So China's data has all come in quite pretty strong. China data surprises are at the highs and Europe is three times more exposed to trade with China than the US. So all of those factors make it very difficult for positioning to be the big concern for me right now. Hey, Jordan, thank you, mate. And congratulations over the weekend to Villa. Thank you, sir. Jordan Rochester of Nomura. One of the great voices of Wall Street, counseling patients in a reach out three years is David Balin, Chief Investment Officer, Global Head of Investments at City Global Wealth, who had a certain courage through the pandemic to say, stay in the market. David, you lead your essay, it is not easy to be an investor right now. How do I have confidence to stay in stocks? Well, right now, Tom, we're sort of two-thirds through the bear market. And what's standing between us and a recovery in portfolios is the recognition of what earnings are going to be and what the level of recession that the Fed anticipates and has actually talked about now actually occurs. We think that earnings you know, are going to go down probably between 7 and 10%, much less than what analysts are expecting in terms of they're actually expecting growth. And the second thing that you and your team have just talked about, which I think is critical, is that we already see further tightening due to bank lending standards. And we see it across several data sources. First, we already see that banks are lending less, that the actual amount of outstanding loans are going down. Second, we see the reporting by companies of the fact that lending standards are already tighter. And third, we actually are going to see that the ability and capacity of small and medium-sized banks to lend is going to go down as a result of almost a half a trillion dollars of deposits moving into treasuries and money market funds over the last three months. So these are already constraints on an economy that is already slowing. David, we've been talking all morning about the dispersion, the sort of uh, disagreement between bonds and stocks. Bonds seem to be pricing in rate cuts on the heels of exactly what you're talking about, credit restriction that really just escalates throughout the year. And you see stock traders kind of shrugging that off and saying things are so all copacetic. Who do you think is right? Well, the bond market looks to be right for the moment. What's interesting is that, you know, bonds have rallied extraordinarily. And you've talked about this for the last, you know, five weeks. Uh, the, you know, the two-year and the 10-year have moved, you know, yields have moved dramatically lower. The, the stock market is anticipating and saying, well, that's great. You know, the discount rate for stocks has actually gone down. Bravo. But really what's happening is that the bond market is saying we have to be much more vigilant about where their earnings are going to go down and where they're going to go up. So companies that have moats around them, you know, different technology companies and other you know industries where you can see both margin growth and revenue growth should be rewarded. Uh, but you've seen, you know, the bank stocks in particular, and some of the ones you've been discussing this morning do poorly. And the industry averages, you know, the S&P and stuff has been largely range bound since October of last year. So what we have to see is this digesting of what really is going to happen with earnings in order to be able to look into 24 and 25. And when we do, I think we'll see a substantial 
recovery. But again, we're two thirds of a way through a bear market in equities. Earlier this year, people were talking about going outside the U.S. to Europe in particular as a place, particularly because the ECB was still raising rates, potentially much more than the Fed was poised to do so this year. Do you still see that as the narrative that could drive investment theses? Or do you think the U.S. looks like a better place to park simply because it will go through the cycle quicker and there will be more pain on the heels of some of the rate hikes elsewhere? It's a great question. If I had to predict one thing that we would be writing, you know, just a month or two from now, it would be that, you know, emerging market exposure is going to become or non-US exposure is going to become extremely important. Right now we are near, you know, the third highest dollar peak ever. We haven't come very much off of that. And valuations for non-US stocks and especially emerging market stocks are at all-time lows. So if you're a US investor today, you you would like to buy companies, right, in industries outside of the U.S. to take advantage of both the disproportionate devaluation of those shares, as well as the fact that the dollar is going to fall. I think it's going to be a major source of income for us, for profits for us over the course of the next uh, two or three years. You're not alone, David. We've heard that a lot. David Bannon there of City Global Wealth. Nobody ever says make it complicated. That is why Nationwide makes simplicity a priority by providing financial professionals with straightforward, client-ready resources. From clear strategies to help clients meet retirement savings and income needs, to ways to cover rising health care costs and more. Nationwide simplifies planning so more time can be spent helping clients. Nationwide is on your side. Nationwide Investment Services Corporation, member FINRA, Columbus, Ohio. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Right now, a brief, and this comes off the IMF World Bank meetings, and thank you to all in Washington that helped us, particularly uh, Peggy Noonan running the ship for us in Washington. Julie Norman joins now, co-director of uh, UCL Center in U.S. Politics. Julie, is a broad stance, what I noticed at the IMF World Bank meetings were the unspoken. Nobody wanted to say China. That word was banned from the meeting. You couldn't say China. But the other thing that was banned was the word allies. Recalibrate for us now, the Western allies. How allied are the allies? Well, Tom, I think you mentioned China as well. And obviously, we've seen in the last couple of weeks, and I would say even longer than that, a little bit of wobbling in what alliance means and how uh, different uh, partners approach the question of China in particular. So 
Obviously, we see strong alliances in terms of the stance towards Ukraine. We've seen that with NATO, with European partners. But with an issue like China, it gets a little bit different. There's a lot of different interests at play, as you all well know. And so I think we still see alliances, but at the same time, we see some differences among that as well. And so there's a little bit more caution in using that term when you're talking about some of these more complicated issues. The, the bilateralness, or the, I, I should say the tension between Washington and Beijing, to me, is just too simplistic. Who are you watching among our allies to change the dynamic between Washington and Beijing? Well, I think the, you know, there's obviously the look to Europe first and fo- foremost. Uh, the UK, I would say, has already shifted its pol- policy, notably in the last few years, I think even more so because of uh, China's actions against Hong Kong more than anything else. We started seeing a bit of a, a tilt in some of the UK policies, continental Europe otherwise. But I'm actually watching um, some other allies kind of outside of Western Europe, India in particular, um, states that are kind of in this uh, kind of still allies with the U.S., but a lot of different kind of interests going on that do have a big say and influence on what's happening in the Pacific, in Asia, and in other parts of the world. You know, China, we think of this bilateral relationship with Washington, but so much of where their power is is in, uh, it's outside of Europe. You know, it's in Africa, it's in, uh, you know, uh, Southern Asia, it's across the world. And so those are the countries I'm looking at. Well, but Julie, taking a step back, one thing that really emerged from last week's IMF meetings was a sense of not only fragmentation, but an inability to have leadership to address it, to come up with what the framework is in the modern bipolar or multipolar era. Larry Summers, a former Treasury Secretary, on Friday said there's growing acceptance of fragmentation and maybe even more troubling. I think there's a growing sense that ours may not be the best fragment to be associated with. China gives you an airport, we give you a lecture. How much is that really your sense of what's going on? Well, I think you said it exactly right there. There's a lot of states that are finding it advantageous to partner with China because they're, they see it as there's not strings attached. There isn't going to be pressure on democracy. There isn't going to be pressure on human rights. It's very transactional. It's very much a business deal. And so that works for, again, a lot of states, and it works very well for, for China. So I would say in terms of Summer's comments, again, um, there's a lot at play here. Again, the U.S. is still trading at its highest levels ever with China as well. So it's not like the U.S. is backing away from that. But the U.S. is coupling that, again, with very strong um, you know, arms buildup, with uh, you know, this, this very strong confrontational stance as well, that other states are hesitant to get onto that uh, for their own interests. Just getting a couple of headlines. Top diplomats in the G7 meeting over in Japan over the next two days. Here are the headlines from one U.S. official. G7 ministers agree on engagement with China, agreed to stay tightly coordinated on Ukraine, and then linking the two issues. G7 cooperation on Ukraine, Tom, leads to unity on China. The latest headlines from a U.S. official as top diplomats meet over in Japan. We seem to be massaged. I mean, it's exactly, you know, I, I, I think it's exactly what you'd you'd expect to see. What's important there is it's not a G8. Russia used to be in the club, and Russia's not in the club anymore. Well, also, they've got to massage some of the issues of the last week. We keep returning to those comments, Tom, from the French leader a couple of weekends oh, yeah. ago. Oh, yeah. There, there's an there is some massaging here. to do, yeah. is it fair no to question. say? <laughs> just just ignoring. I mean, that's what happened with European officials. Just like, la, 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 we're totally United. That's, That's what, what I got from the IMF World Bank meetings too. Lisa, I'm so pleased you went there. Didn't you get that <laughs> did, feeling as you well? Know, and, Just and sort I, of hoping those comments didn't happen, yeah. pretending they well, didn't happen. Totally. I mean, you guys, I had to leave late because of this wonderful panel I did at the IMF. And of course, I stopped up on U Street at Ben's Chili Bowl. And I can tell you from reporting, they're still called French fries. 
Is that the latest? The, the latest. They that. didn't, they so didn't the, take... The diplomatic spat hasn't any. gone that yeah, far. they didn't change. It's still Frenchers. Why don't you continue with I, I plan to. Julie, I wanted to bring that up. When you <coughs> listen to US and European officials, they're almost pretending this tension between the two does not exist. Julie, how much tension is there right now over trade, over big foreign policy issues? Yeah, I mean, obviously there are tensions. I would say I, I don't want to overstate them either. I mean, right now the most immediate issue uh, is Ukraine. And I think the U.S., France and other NATO countries are, you know, that is where the, the alliance needs to stay tight and it has stayed tight. China has always been complicated. There has been a difference between European and U.S. approaches to China for some years now. So this isn't really taking anyone by surprise. And even Macron's comments, I think, are... Um, a bit more, uh, you probably shared by some others, even though people are, are pretty quick to, to critique him. But I think a lot of European states, as well as, again, other states on the periphery, are just uh, realistic about the fact that China is going to take a little bit of a more nuanced kind of approach from any states where their interests are very uh, intertwined there. And uh, that's just a reality. Julie, thanks for the perspective and the reality check, as always. Julie Norman there of the UCL Center on U.S. politics. Subscribe to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast on Apple, Spotify, and anywhere else you get your podcasts. Listen live every weekday starting at 7 a.m. Eastern on Bloomberg.com, the iHeartRadio app, TuneIn, and the Bloomberg Business app. You can watch us live on Bloomberg Television and always on the Bloomberg Terminal. Thanks for listening. I'm Tom Keen, and this is Bloomberg. Take your business further with the smart and flexible American Express Business Gold Card. You can earn four times points on your top two eligible spending categories every month, like transit, U.S. restaurants, and gas stations. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Four times points on up to $150,000 in purchases per year. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash businessgoldcard. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts.